Hey, single roses, welcome or welcome back to I Buy My Own Roses, the podcast where we are building fulfilling lives with or without a romantic partner. I am your host, Ariel. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the podcast. It means the world to me that you are here. I hope everyone is doing well. I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day and I hope you did something special for yourself on that day. So for today's episode, I am actually doing my very first interview. As I told you all before, we're going to have a special guest on the podcast maybe once a month, and they're going to be educating us on their area of expertise. So I am so excited for this. Not only was it my first time interviewing someone, but my guest was absolutely phenomenal. I sat down and had a conversation with Dr. Chris Marsh, who is the author of The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. So this book is for us. This was a wonderful conversation. We talked about the differences between being a Black single woman and a white single woman what it means to be single in America, the pressure to partner, the structural issues that go into our decisions when it comes to partnering. We talk a lot about what we can do as single women to enjoy our singleness and just so much more. The conversation was absolutely amazing. I am so glad to share this with you all. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So let's get into it. Hi, Dr. Marsh. Well, hello, Ariel. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic. (laughs) I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Welcome to I Buy My Mm -hmm. Own Roses. I'm so glad that you are here. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the type of work that you do? Absolutely. So I'm actually calling in from Los Angeles, California. So it's 9 a.m. where I am, but uh, I'm from LA, born and raised, did my PhD at the University of Southern California. I'm now faculty at the University of Maryland College Park. I've been there since 08. I was tenured in 2014, and I just wrote a book that is out and doing really well that's called The Love Jones Cohort. And all of my research in one way or another tries to understand avenues into the Black middle class and consequences of being in the Black middle class. And the book is talking about those that are single and living alone in the Black middle class and asking how they live their lifestyles. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea for the book itself? Yeah, so one of the things that was really important to me as a scholar, as I was trying to find my voice as an academic, I decided it was really important that I did not pimp the poor to make my academic career. So let me explain what I mean by that. So there were a lot of scholars that don't look like me that want to talk about Black folks, want to talk about poor Black folks, about high poverty rates, high unemployment rates, high single parent rates, so on and so on and so forth. And so they made their careers talking about poor Black folks. I did not want to do that. I understand that to understand all the Black America, we want to study the extreme. So we do want to study the Black poor in a thoughtful way, but we also want to study people who have, quote unquote, done everything right. 
they went to college, they're making the six figures, they got a professional job, they have a house, but their outcomes look different than people that don't look like them. So because of that, I really wanted to understand how racism still navigates through American society when I wanted doing a more apples to apples comparison. So I was committed to doing work on the black middle class, but I'm a sociologist and a demographer. So as I was um, in graduate school, I was learning in the demographic literature that there was a change in marriage rates. Marriage rates were changing for all racial and ethnic groups, but way more pronounced for black Americans. So what did that actually mean? So I, as a sociologist said, I wanna study people who are single, never been married and are in the black middle class because in the, there was a subtle argument in the social science literature that was suggesting to be middle class, you had to be like two parents, a children, 2.5 children, a dog and a black picket fence. But I was like, oh, Contrea, I think the black middle class, there's a demographic shift happening in the black middle class away from this quintessential type of family, what we would call like a heteronormative family structure that you would see like in the Huxtables on the Cosby show. And now we're starting to see a new demographic where it's young professionals aren't married, who aren't married and don't have children, like characters you would see in the movie Love Jones, hence the title of the book, The Love Jones Cohort. Cohort is a traditional demographic word that simply means a band of people. So as I thought about the title, it's so funny because I was on a, um, I had to review a book for an economist a couple of weeks ago. And so she wanted to put cohort in her book, but the publisher said, most people probably won't know what a cohort is. It's probably best you don't do it. So that was just in the book. I titled my book, The Love Jones Cohort. But part of the reason why I did that is because for people that don't have access to formalized education and may not have a bachelor's degree or beyond, I wanted them to be able to use demographic terms. So it was important to me that I called it The Love Jones Cohort. So that's how the title came to be. It's probably a very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> So can you tell us about a little bit about what we would find in the book, the people you studied, how did you pick those people and what were you really looking for with the participants? So I think the book tries to do three, I would argue the book's trying to do 15,000 different things, but there's three things I think I want the readers to take away from the book. The first, the first point is that it's an ode to black people who are single and living alone. We often think about, we often talk about them in a deficit, people often talk about them in a deficit kind of way. Why aren't you married? Why don't you have children? So I am trying to move away from that and talk about the fullness of the lives that they do have. So it's a, it's a love story it's a, or an ode to them saying, hey, listen, I get it, I understand. As a sociologist, I wanna be very thoughtful in the way in which I think about you and your lifestyle. So I wanna understand the lifestyle and move beyond this deficit model. Why aren't you married? Number two is I really want to destigmatize singlehood. When we think about singlehood, it seems as if so many, some people are so emphatic that they don't want to hold a single title, that they're willing to be in relationships that are unproductive, mm -hmm. unfulfilling, toxic, and oppressive, simply because they don't want to hold the title of single. Mm -hmm. Now I gave you a, I gave you a title, I gave you a whole book, I gave you a whole cohort, I give you a whole <laughs> movement. So don't think you got to be in these oppressive relationships simply because you don't want to be single. So I really am trying to destigmatize singlehood. And if one person picks up the book and reads the books book 
and agrees with my argument or sees where I'm trying to go with my arguments arguments, and they don't end up in a relationship, then my work here is done because that's really what I want um, people to take away from the conversation. You don't have to be partnered. Unfortunately, we live in a partnered and a marriage market where everything is catered to those that are married and to those that are um, partnered, but nothing is really catered to singles. And the last thing that I really want people to think about Okay, I said three, but I think I want to say four. Um, so the last thing I want people to think about is I want people to think about how we define family. That's really important when we think about singles. Because I am a single person and living alone, I do not, by definition, if we use the Census Bureau definition, I would not be considered a family. I'm a household. There are advantages to being in a family versus a household. We can talk about that if you like, but I really would hope that we can start to change policy where people who are single and living alone can be identified as a household to reap the benefits and the opportunities that the title of a household served them. And then I said, I only had three, but I'll give you one more bonus. One of the things and I say this in the book, emphatically at the very end of the book, I ask people to, um, once you finish reading the book, I hope you're less, I hope you're just as, you won't ask single people why they're single, first of all. But if you're going to ask single people why they're single, I hope you also ask married folks why they're married too. We always ask single folks why they're single, but we don't ask married folks and wait for a coherent response because one response they'll give is, oh, I love them. I'm going to need a little more coherency as to why you decided to marry this person. So that's just like a little bonus because people ask all the time. And it's so funny, Ariel, because now that I'm on this quote unquote book tour and talking about the book, like when it's the Q&A, when it's the question and answer time, that's typically, if it's not going to be the first question, it's going to be in the top five. Are you single? Are you looking? I'm like, seriously, did you not just listen to the 45 minute spiel that I just gave you? And they still watch it. And to be fair to the audience members, I think the point that they're trying to get at, and this is me just hypothesizing, I really just don't know. I think they're trying to see if like I'm bitter and I'm not bitter at all. Yes, I'm absolutely open to relationships. I think love is a beautiful thing, but here's what you're not going to do. You're not going to disrupt my peace. You're not going to disturb my peace. If you ain't protecting and preserving my peace, I'm just not interested. Yes. So I think they just want to make sure I'm not bitter. And if I was, so be it. But that's not that's not where I'm coming from with this whole entire project that I've, I've been undertaking for years. Yeah. That's not, that's not a bitter stance. Okay, so you mentioned that you noticed during your work that the Black community was moving away from like the heteronormative way of living. And I want to know if you have an idea of why that might be. So here's something that I argue in the book, and I think it's an interesting argument. So again, I'm a sociologist. So I think what happens a lot of times is that we think about singleness from an individual perspective. And there's danger in that. The reason why I say that there's danger in that is because black women in particular might be thinking, woe is me, what's wrong with me? I can't find a man. But I'm here to say, we've got to, we've got to superimpose a structural conversation on top of this. It cannot be left at the individual level because some black women may feel that they're not enough. The conversation at the structural level has to include the fact that racism and gendered racism still exist in America. So if we think about it, one way, I, one of the things I argue in the book is that we have to understand how structural forces constrain personal choices. So for example, if I, a black woman, go on, go to get a, go to get an undergraduate degree, my pool shrinks. If I want if I wanted to, I'm heterosexual. If I want to date a, a man, a black man, I get a bachelor's degree. 
my pool shrinks. If I start making six figures, my pool shrinks. If I start um, owning a home, my pool shrinks. And that's not all, and that's not just an individual conversation. That really is a structural conversation. So it, we have to understand how racism and gender racism permeates every social institution and up to and including our personal choices and our dating pool. And people don't want to have that conversation. And so I was on a podcast just a couple of days ago and say, so what can black women do? And I was like, I think America, they, they should they should pay reparations to black Americans. And that might help with them with the marriage rates. Why don't we try that? Mm -hmm. Don't make it, don't tell me I need to do something different. Don't tell me that I need to lower my standards. Don't tell me that. It's like there's a structural part of this conversation that we need to have that people are ignoring. The book is trying to get us to that structural conversation. That you make an interesting point about getting a bachelor's degree, buying a home, making your pool shrink. And I think a lot of times I know with the women I know, it's like you believe that the more you get or the better you become, that your pool will get better or that you will get a better quality of man and then there is this push on social media that like you have to be this that and the third and have all of these things if you're going to require it from a man so what would you say to that or to that group of people that are telling that black women you just need to vet better right so 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 there's two points i want to i want to make and i want to make a point that i'll answer your question okay i do that so what I also think is really important too, and it gets back to the, the opening comments, like the three things I wanted to tell the readers or the listeners, readers and listeners for that matter. If we think about how structural forces constrain our personal choices, and then you have these institutions that are discriminating against single folks, that's a problem. That is a whole system in place that is going to disadvantage black middle, people that are in the Love Jones cohort in particular, black women. So for example, if you think about how the racism and gender racism shrinks your pool at the education level, at the income level, at the homeownership level, and then because you're a family, you're not considered a family, you don't get the benefits. For example, if I want to go to Verizon, if I want to go to a cell phone place and get the family plan, I can't because I'm only one cell phone. So I'm not gonna get that discount. If I want to go on vacation, I have to pay a single occupancy versus a double occupancy. Why am I paying more? I want to get the mark. I want to get the solid family plan rate where I'm not paying more because I'm single, because it's not all individual. It's structural, but you're going to disadvantage me. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the egregious example that I think everybody on this phone is going to nod their, everybody on this call is going to nod their head. Single folks pay more in the tax structure. Yeah. See, mm -hmm. <laughs> so why is so, right? So why can't I be the Marsh family when I decide that I'm going to file my taxes? There's this great work that's done by a, a legal scholar. Her name is Dorothy Brown, and she talks about the whiteness of wealth. And one of the arguments I believe Dorothy is making is that because we know that tax structures advantage some type of households and marriages. Why don't we all file a single? If we ain't gonna all file a single, you're going to let me file as a family. Yes. So I'm hoping that we can change policy and we think about a family. But here's the point that I'm to, but to your point, right? I think it's important that we think about this. It's constraining your pool, but then there's also consequences to the constraints. But I would admonish listeners to think about why they wanna be in a relationship. I think black love is a beautiful thing. I think marriage, when it's done right, is an absolute beautiful thing. And as sure as I have just said that on this call, I am going to get some hate mail that says you're bad for black America because you're not promoting black families. Oh, contraire, I am absolutely promoting black families. 
but I'm promoting it. I'm coming at it from a different perspective. You have to be very happy and healthy and whole in your singleness before you even get into a relationship. But I think what happens a lot of times is that we fall to societal pressures. So all I'm asking the readers to do, listeners to do is think about why do you really want to be in a relationship? And that's only a question that you can answer. Is it because of everything that is thrown at you every single day on media, social media, the big screen, the little screen that talks about love, I love him and relationships and all of that? Or is there a real reason why you want to be in this romantic relationship? And the reason why I ask that question, it's a hard question, but you have to answer that question for yourself is because I would argue that most black women or black women in general in the cohort in particular talked about this, how they have very fulfilling non-romantic relationships with other black women and other family members. So be sure you, if people are talking about they want to be in a relationship, be sure you acknowledge what kind of relationship you want because you are in multiple relationships that provide some type of love and nurturing to you. But we just prioritize this romantic love because that is what is always prioritized in the social in the social media world and in the media world. So I just ask people, like, honestly, be very honest with yourself. Why is it do you want why is it you want to be in a romantic relationship? And if you're like, because everybody tells me I should, I'm good with that. But at least it's a thought exercise that you need to do. Right. So you kind of answered my other question because I was going to ask you, why do you think people are so like desperate to partner when like the dating market is crazy, like no one walks away from this happy. And I feel like a lot of women feel like being single is a journey to a relationship or it is a waiting room or some sort of punishment. Like you said, maybe that they're doing something wrong. They feel like if they swipe long enough or they go on enough dates that eventually they will find the one. And I always talk about personally, one of the things I noticed was just like, the gap in the numbers, you know, everybody wants black love, but I'm like, there's, there are a lot more black women who, you know, want to be partnered than there are black men available for them. And so, yeah, I was just going to ask you, like, why is that their desperation to partner? But I think you kind of answered it. Right. So it's, it's, and that's a really great point. And I think that's why I'm really, really, really trying to destigmatize singlehood and change the narrative about singlehood. Some people see it as a transitional category just until a way like a purgatory until they get married. Mm -hmm. Some people see it as a punishment until they get married. Some people see it as a sentencing until they get married. But I also think in some ways, unless you stand confidently in this space, you shouldn't be in relationships, number one. Number two, um, we have to be really careful. And I think my students, you know, they keep me hip on like these new terms and stuff like this and the text terms you're supposed to use. I'm like, okay, fine. So they talk about being thirsty. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be really careful because if you're thirsty, we have to understand and be real honest. There are some predators out there. And so you're alone. And it's so funny because I think terms are going to change in a little while. Mark my words, 10 years from now, we probably won't use the word alone. But if you have a problem with the word alone, call yourself a lovely one. That's nice. So if you're a lovely one and you want to be in a relationship because you think that you're alone and you get into a relationship with this person and now they took all your money, they took all your emotions, they took all your sex, and now you're broke, busted, and disgusted because you really wanted to be in this relationship because of some personal requirements or because of what society has told you. Again, we have to understand where we're being there. We also have to be very care- why we want to be in a relationship, but we also have to be very careful about predators because there are absolute predators out there. And so there's there are people looking for sugar mamas. Yes. There's people looking for 
Look at Danny's. I, and I'm not saying it's going, I'm not saying it's one way or another. I'm saying it's going both ways if we're thinking about it from a heterosexual perspective. Yeah. Right. Even though there are those barriers to partnership, we're still told around this age, oh, if you don't get married or you don't have a man or you don't have kids or whatever, you're running out of time. I, I've even had a man tell me I was in like the third quarter. <laughs> like, you're in the third quarter. <laughs> what are you waiting for? I guess like it's just fear mongering thing to tell us, oh, you're going to die alone. And you're just going to be so sad. And so what would you say to that argument that oh, in order to have a happy, fulfilling life, I have to get into a relationship? Yeah, I wish y'all could see my facial expression because I'm like, please miss me on that entire conversation. Now, please understand if that if the romantic love is what you want, I'm not trying to undermine that at all. But I think it's short sighted to undermine the non romantic relationships that you have. So, for example, I happen to be in California to help my girlfriend with some health challenges that she's going through with her family. So I'm here in California for that. I will always be there for my friends. And so just because you don't have the romantic partner does not mean that you're going to die alone. You have friends that are going to be there with you. And in some ways, there's a great book by my colleague, a friend, Elia Kim Kislev, who wrote a book called Happy Singlehood. It's not about Black people. But his kind of central argument or one of the subtle arguments that he's making in his book is that people who are never married and age they actually are happier as they age or can be happier. Part of the reason why they can be happier is because they don't put all of their emotional eggs in the marriage basket. Mm -hmm. So as they age, they have some friends they go to church with. They have some friends they use profanity with. They have some friends that they golf with. They have some friends that they talk sociology with. Maybe I'm talking about myself, but who knows? <laughs> okay, well, here's the point. But if you're married, you put all your eggs in the marriage basket. And then as you age, you find yourself returning back to singlehood and you don't know how to navigate it because you put everything in your partner basket. So whether you're in a relationship, you decide to get into a romantic relationship or not, please don't discount your girlfriends and your girls because you need to have those. You need to have play dates and you need to have friends outside of your relationship because that relationship may not always be there. And I'm talking to myself because I lost some girlfriends along the way because I was in a relationship and I was like, I should have never done that. So I'm like, I'm never, I'm, that, I was much younger. But it's important for us to think about that. We put all of our eggs in the marriage basket. And that's daunting too. And I do believe, given what my cohort members told me, Black women navigate singlehood a little differently than do Black men in the cohort. So Black women, they have these nurturing relationships with other Black women. But Black men, for the most part in the cohort, really didn't have those relationships with other Black men. So they used the relationships for like utility purposes to move a couch or something like that with other men. But they didn't have these nurturing relationships. And I'm also trying to normalize Black men having these non-romantic nurturing relationships with other men and not being thought of as being soft or being gay or being a punk because they have these non-romantic relationships. And I think that those are really important and we shouldn't underestimate those. So I don't, I push back a little bit when people say, you know, I'm going to die lonely or I'm going to die alone. I was like, you may not be with a romantic partner, but I guarantee you, you have like friends who are going to make sure that you're taken care of. Now I want to be balanced in what some of the people in the cohort said, because there were some members in the cohort that said that they were lonely but we kind of they they spoke of it like as situational loneliness and not a chronic loneliness so what i mean by that is that we just had valentine's day right or single awareness day or black love day whatever day you will call it 
So you might have people that are a little lonely on Valentine's Day or people that are a little lonely on New Year's Eve because everybody says they have somebody to kiss on New Year's Eve, but not a chronic loneliness where like you're, it's debilitating, you can't get out of bed and so on and so forth. It's situational, it's temporary, it's short. You have some friends that you rally that rally around you and you're able to move on. But if you decide that you're lonely, and those two holidays, you don't want to be alone and you get into a relationship. It sounds as if you could be getting into a relationship out of the out of need as opposed to want. And I am of the mindset that when you get into a relationship out of need, needs have expiration dates. So that relationship is going to come to an expiration date. A shelf life is going to expire at some point, And then you have to figure out what you're going to do. So make sure you're in a relationship because you want to be there, not because you need to be there. Because that's going to be, it could be a problematic relationship for both you and the other person. Yeah. So I want to shift the conversation one more time. What we're seeing in the single sphere. So I've personally noticed that there seems to be like a white woman singleness happening, more of like a movement where they're getting divorced. It's just become like this single child free, kind of like a revolution and it's starting to pick up steam. And so I'm wondering if you've seen any differences in the way like white women are handling singleness and the way black women are handling singleness. Oh, well, yes, you are. You are all up in chapter three, paragraph four, <laughs> line seven. I just actually have the book. So I, I so appreciate the comment. And I, one of the things that's one of the things I'm really trying to tackle in the book as well. I can only give three main points, but that's one of the things too. And you're, you're dead on point. There is, it feels as if singleness and the single scholarship has a white gaze. It's like, oh, you've had these white women that are choosing to be single, notice my words, choosing to be single. So now we're going to do this whole scholarship body of literature around these white women that are choosing singlehood and how they're doing it and so on and so forth. And I'm like, mm -mm, I'm about to pull y'all coattail. What y'all not ready to do is take singlehood like you took R&B and you took everything else from us. What you're going to do is you're going to pay respect and homage to Black women because Black women have shown everybody how to do singlehood and how to do it effectively. So I say that point blank period in the book. And I have scholars that are friends of mine that do singlehood work and they're like, Chris, we appreciate you for calling us to task. And I was like, I'm going to have to. But it just has a white face and a white gaze. And every time somebody tries to, tries to write something about that, they're going to now cite Love Jones cohorts. So I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. And I have numbers to kind of show like women are really dominating, Black women are dominating the category. But it's also a conversation about how we think about singlehood. And in the book, I argued that you really have to think about singlehood from an intersectional perspective, meaning you want to just think about just women. You want to think about how Black women understand singleness. Because to just say singleness, I get exactly to your point. There might be some white women that are choosing to be single. And I even asked cohort, the cohort in the book, are you choosing singlehood? Is it choice or is it circumstances? And for Black women, I think that part of the conversation is about how circumstances have led them to certain choices mm. and how structural forces constrain their choices and they don't even sometimes even realize it. So it's a very different kind of conversation how we get to singlehood. I am so excited that there's a lot of scholarship that's being done around singlehood now, but I think it has to be very thoughtful scholarship and it needs a nuanced race, gender, and or intersectional perspective. And so, yes, you are so on point that you do see it having a uh, singlehood has a white gaze, but the book really tries to push back and say, no, we're not going to do this again. Yeah. 
So what do you say to the listeners out there who want this, but they're in their singleness and maybe they genuinely just feel lack and they feel they're feeling a sense of lack. What advice would you give them to live a fulfilling life, even if they do not have a romantic partner? Romantic partner. Yes. So I I would say, again, you don't want to underestimate or undervalue your non-romantic relationships and or cultivate other non-romantic relationships because you will get a lot of fulfillment out of some of those non-romantic relationships. Chapter 10 talks a lot about like coping and coping mechanisms and mental and physical health. And I am of the mindset that if you are a black professional in America, you need to see your, you need to get a therapist and you need to see your therapist. I don't know how often I see mine once a week, every Monday at 10 a.m. I am trying to destigmatize mental health as well. Black Americans, we don't talk enough about mental health. I see my therapist every Monday at 10 a.m. So I would think about trying to use some, what are your coping mechanisms? What do you do? I, Chris Marsh, have a mental health Monday and I do all the stuff that I want to do and none of the stuff that I have to do. I see my therapist and usually I try to go out to the golf course. Now, I'm not trying to play matchmaker. I am not. I am not. However, (laughs) as I just negated what I'm just going to negate what I just said, I find every time I go to the golf course, some man is trying to pick me up. If you are just that pressed, take some golf lessons, get yourself about five lessons, buy some cute little clubs, cute little outfit, go on out there to the golf course and you will meet somebody on the golf course because I meet guys on the golf course all the time. I'm just there to golf. I am not there to be picked up on, but I swear to you every time. And I think part of it is, again, I'm not giving dating advice, but I think part of it is, is that. Once you verbalize and once you convey that you're very confident in your singleness, you, you that thirst factor is gone. And I think it makes you even more attractive to men. Because I'm like, I ain't in the mood. I'm going to try and hit my ball straight and far. I'm like, well, baby, let me hit your ball straight and far with you. Let me, I, okay, I just, I just can't. I just can't. But I think it really is important to find some kind of coping mechanism, whatever it may be. And so on my mental health Monday, I appreciate that. Everybody who knows me knows that I have a mental health Monday. And because I am a professor and I do consider myself a mentor to my students, once a Dr. Marsh student, always a Dr. Marsh student. So I want to model to them as they become professionals that you've got to take time for yourself. Self-care, it should not be underestimated either. So my students will email me or text me like, hey, Dr. Marsh, I know it's your Mental Health Monday, but tomorrow when you read this text, please let me know if blah, 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 blah. So they, I draw my boundaries and my students know like, Mm-mm, it's not happening on a Monday. So and I hope it happens for you. If you want it to happen, if you want it to happen for all of the right reasons, I hope it happens for you. I hope it happens for you in a very affirming kind of way. But until then, I think it's really important for us to just like live, enjoy life, enjoy your singleness. This is a time where you don't have to be responsible for anybody at all. I always tell people, I don't want to be responsible for anybody's emotions. I just don't. I don't want to have to come home and be polite. I don't want to, I don't, I'm like, I talk a lot during the day. I want to come home and not hear my own voice. And God knows I don't want to come home and you ask me what we having for dinner. I'm like, I'm having popcorn. What are you having? (laughs) Relationships are great. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's just, I I have a certain level of freedom that I absolutely appreciate. So um, the book is out. I'm in California for, I'm on sabbatical. So I'm in California for a couple of days. I'm going to Atlanta. I'm going to South Africa. I'm going to Dallas. I was like, your girl just picked up a, picking up a bag, an overnight bag and going, taking my my golf clubs, a couple of these places. I can play some golf while I'm there. I'm in California. So I plan to play golf maybe tomorrow, but I'm living, I'm absolutely living my best life. And here's the thing though, which I think is kind of important. 
Do I have some suitors that are out there? Absolutely. It's not like I don't have an arsenal. I'm just really enjoying my singleness. I really, really am. It's got to just, it's got to just make sense to yeah. me at this point. This absolutely does. And I'm not just taking anything and nothing makes sense right now. Yeah. I love that. That has to make sense. Okay. Can we look back to black women and black men? Did you find that other than the relationship piece of having relationships with other men are black men receiving the same backlash when it comes to singleness as black women and are they handling singleness better than black women oh my gosh that's such a great question and i don't have a good answer well i have an answer but i don't know if it's good so one of the things we talked about in the book um we talked to the cohort members about stigma like who's more stigmatized men or women older or younger folks and I promise you, as a scholar, I really grappled with trying to make sense and trying to make meaning of what my 62 respondents had to say, because it went a couple of different ways. Some people were saying men were more stigmatized. Some people were saying women were more, were more stigmatized. Some were saying younger, some were saying older. Like So for example, some of the people who argued that younger folks are more stigmatized, their argument was that because younger folks have a bigger dating pool, something must be wrong with them. Once you get older, people die off, people marry off, so your dating pool shrinks. So yeah, we'll give you a pass. And I was like, okay, never really thought about that. But then they would say like, oh, well, women are definitely more stigmatized than men because women are just angry black bitches, educated black bitches, ball busters. They just, they just hate, all, hate all men. Men, are, if they're over the age of 50, never been married, don't have any children, they must be gay. They in the closet, they on the down low. So, so I can't really give you where. So I, I, it was hard for me to parse out where the stigma lies. But the one thing that was consistent is that people that are single are stigmatized, okay. period. Okay. And that's the unfortunate part. And I'm trying to have this book out here so we can destigmatize that singlehood. It's like, I made a choice. I'm like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to take a relationship just for the sake of a relationship. Right. But I also have to understand that structural forces have limited, have limited my sutures that I can choose from anyway. Yeah, for sure. So in the beginning, you were talking about how there are benefits to or structural benefits to being in a relationship versus being single. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So one of the things I talk about in the book, this is an interesting argument. And to be honest, sometimes I buy my argument. Sometimes I'm not sure how I feel about the argument. So one of the things that I was talking about a couple of seconds ago, I was saying how we have to understand singlehood from an intersectional lens. And so what I mean by that is we want to understand like how race multiplied by gender influences singlehood, right? So I'm also, so in the, some of the social science literature, when we think about like intersectionality, Patricia Hill Collins, who wrote Black Feminist Thought, also has this idea of like the matrix of domination. So in the matrix of domination are these three kind of identities, race, class, and gender. I am arguing that in the matrix of domination, it should be race, class, gender, and singleism. I am not saying that singleism is as oppressive as racism, but what we understand is that racism permeates every single social institution in America, because we're talking about America. I would argue that singleism 
permeates every single institution in America as well. I gave you the example of like the tax structure, thinking about health care benefits, thinking about estate planning, because one of the things I ask in the book is like who people, how people um, acquire wealth and how they transfer their wealth in estate planning. I think in every it's paid, catered to a marriage market and it ignores singles. It's so funny because I am single and living alone. I remember I was some I was somewhere at an institution. I won't say which one. And we were having like a job candidate come by for dinner. And they're like, well, who can take him out to dinner? It's like, oh, well, Chris isn't married, doesn't have kids, so she can go. I'm like, well, why do you automatically think that my time should be disposable? I'm like, I'm the Marsh family. I got I, the Marsh family. I'm going home to the Marsh family. You don't know what I'm doing in my personal time. Right. So you just assume that I have all this flexibility. And the research kind of suggests this, and the cohort members have suggested this as well. People that are single and living alone, their checkbook and their time becomes accessible to the, their extended family mm -hmm. because it's like, oh, you don't have a husband. You ain't got kids. You can take, you can take grandmother to her podiatry appointment, or you can go to this appointment or you can do this, or you could, we can take some of your money because you ain't gonna have your little kids starve. And I'm like, wait a minute, hold on, wait one minute. So if we start thinking about singles in a family kind of way, because I think it permits every social institution, then I don't think that I think some of that stuff that we have to contend with, we won't have to contend with. So it needs to be in taxes. It needs to be. And I think like in hiring, it's like, I think it should be like, I'm the Marsh family. Don't ask if I'm single married. Don't ask. Yeah, that's true. You're right. Mm -hmm. They do tend to ask that question on certain on certain things. I'm like, why does it matter? Yeah. I'm the most family. It don't matter how many people in my family are in the business. Yeah. Because I think inherently there's a value judgment or there's some there's some consequences to say how many people in your family. So if I tell you it's just a family of one, or I'd say it's a family of 17, how are you, you going to look at those the same or different? Right. Right. And I just think it's a, it's a problem. Yeah. I completely agree with you. It definitely is. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I can sit here and talk to you all day about singleness and your book. Where can the listeners find your book if they would like to read it? So there's a couple of places you can find it. You can go to my website. My website is Dr. Chris Marsh. That's D-R-K-R-I-S. M-A-R-S-H dot com. You can go to my website and buy it there. I do have an audio book that'll be coming out soon, but I just don't know when. You can also go to Amazon and buy it on Amazon. I am happy to report as of this morning for new releases. I'm the number one bestseller in economics, category of economics, gender studies, and social sciences, I believe. So I'm really happy to keep the momentum going. So go, please go buy the book on Amazon. And or you can go to Cambridge University Press and buy the book at Cambridge University Press. Okay. And if you go to my website and click the events tab, I try to post some of the places where I'm going to be. So if you have your book and want me to sign your book and, and you come to one of the events, I will happily sign your book for you. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you so much for writing the book and all the work that you do. So there's, there's one thing I want to leave you with and two things. One, if your readers read the book and they have any questions and want to have a discussion, I will absolutely come back. You just tell me when I'm coming back and consider it done. Okay. The other thing I also kind of want to tell readers a little bit about how to read the book. Okay. So because the book is written by Cambridge University Press, there is some kind of boilerplate or theoretical stuff that is in the front of the book. If you don't like theory or if it's a little bit dense, I highly recommend that you hold on until chapter two. 
Once you get to chapter two, you will hear the cohort's voices and them talk about how they navigate their lifestyles. But because it is an academic press, I try to write it with a commercial audience in focus. But because it is an academic press, the introduction to chapter one are a little dense and a bit theoretical. And the only reason why I'm saying that is because I wrote the book. And when I had to copy edit the book, I literally tried to peruse through the first chapter and the introduction, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get to the good stuff. <laughs> but it literally took me an entire day to copy edit those two chapters. The very next day, I was able to read and copy edit chapters two through 10. So two through 10 is going to be a slightly different read. So if you find it boring, which is fine, <laughs> just hold on until chapter two. And it, I think it'll be a little bit of a different read for you. The other thing, too, is that my editor had said that sometimes I talk in a stream of consciousness. I just talk, I just talk. And it's clearly, you can tell that from this conversation. So he said, if you feel like you're going off on a tangent, put it in a footnote, but try to keep your footnotes to a minimum. So I got 120 footnotes because I have some tangents I had to go off on. Now, because I had, I put some really interesting ideas in the footnotes. So it's important that you read the footnotes. I'm a lazy reader, so I don't, I'm not going to flip to the back of the book to read through footnotes. So I actually put the footnotes on the same page, which makes the book even feel a bit more academic. But I did that so it made it easier for the reader to actually read the footnotes. So one, hold on to chapter two, and please read the footnotes because there's some juicy golden nuggets in the footnotes. Yeah, it sounds good. I appreciate it so much. Thank you again for joining me. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that amazing episode of our podcast. It left me feeling so inspired to continue the work of destigmatizing singleness in the Black community and continuing to help Black women just find and build fulfilling lives, even without a romantic partner. If you have any questions, for Dr. Chris Marsh, please send me a DM or an email and we can have her back on the show to answer some of your questions. I would absolutely love to have her back. So yes, please send me questions so we can have a follow-up conversation about either the questions you have after reading her book or questions you have about the interview that we just did. Please go out and buy the book. The book is a necessity. You need the book. You need to read the book. I highly recommend that every single, even if you're not a single, I highly recommend that everybody goes out and reads the book. It just gives a lot of information and data about our community as it relates to economics and singleness and partnership. So that is all I have for you today. Thank you again for tuning in. Don't forget to rate the podcast. If you are listening, go ahead and take a screenshot and Put it in your Instagram stories and tag me at I Buy My Own Roses. I hope to see you all here again for another episode next Tuesday. Bye.